Parashat Kitisa. The central, the central event in Parashat Kitisa, of course, is the Cheta Ego, the sin of the golden calf. I'm not going to talk about that, but maybe I'll come back to it at the end. And I hope it won't be too artificial, the manner in which I connect what it is that I am going to speak about with the Cheta Ego. But if I haven't come back to it at the end, remind me, so that we can put all the pieces together. But what we're going to talk about is also very handy, because it's related to this week's Parsha, but also in a, a couple, three weeks, we have Parshat Shkalim. And the Psukim that opened this week's Parsha, about the giving of the Shekel, uh, uh, is repeated again when we get to Parshat Shkalim. So you can reuse it, or relearn it, or get it, or get it twice. The, the parasha opens, Vaidaba Hashem Moshele Mor, Kitisa at Rosh Bene Israel of Kudehem, Vinatnu Ishkofer, Nafshol Hashem, Bifkodotam, Veloye Bahem Negev, Bifkodotam, Ze Yitnu Kolha Overlap Kudim. When they would take the yearly census, it was done not by counting the individuals, you know, in some kind of way where, like, let's say everybody would pass under, pass through the gate. And, you know, like when you go to the, the theater or something, there's always that guy with the clicker so they can click to know how many people were there. That's not how it's done. It's that everybody puts a, a bean into the pot and they count up the beans. And that's how they know how many people there are. But instead of counting beans, everybody gave a half shekel coin. Ze yitnu kol haover Machatzit hashekel b'shekel hakodesh, a half a shekel of the holy shekel, holy not whole complete, holy sacred, the shekel hakodesh. The Ramban tries to explain what's so holy about this about this shekel. Why is this shekel the shekel hakodesh? Hmm? Well, it did go to the Beit HaMikdash, but in other words, the sh- before you gave it to the Beit HaMikdash, it was still the Shekel HaKodesh. So why is that? Why is that Kodesh? So the Ramban says, Kavalo Moshe Rabbeinu Matbea Kesef Yisrael, that the monetary system was set up by Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu was the Navi, but he was also the, the Sar HaOtsar, the Minister of Finance, as it were. And he determined... The, the financial system, you know, which is, by the way, uh, you know, a sign of every nation. That part of, part of being a nation is that you would have your own borders and you would have your own army and you would have your own postal system and you would have your own monetary system. Uh, so, so Moshe Rabbeinu sets it up. Ki melech gadol haya. This is an idea that exists in the Ramban elsewhere that Moshe, in addition to his principal role as Rabbeinu, the teacher, the Navi, par excellence, he also served a kind of function as a king. He served that kind of political role as the leader of the people in that desert generation. And that's one of the roles of a king, is to set up a monetary system. shekel, and the, the term, like every, every currency has its own term. You have a, a pound sterling, you have a dollar, you have a franc, you have a yen, you have a shekel. So what does the term shekel mean? Shekel literally means a, a weight. Because the shekel was a certain type of 
whole weight of measure. Whole weight of measure. It's. I, I mean, it just occurred to me now. I'm not sure. Are there any Brits? Oh, Benji, you're here. There are Brits amongst us. What's the origin? What's the etymology of calling the currency in in England a pound? Because it corresponded to a weight of of gold, presumably of something. No. What? A pound sterling silver. Yeah. So, so you're shaking your head that that's not correct. We can if. If only there were some kind of worldwide resource that we could that we could consult to get a quick answer to this question. Perhaps one of you is carrying such a thing around in your pocket, and you can look it up while we're while we're uh, while we're learning. Uh, but I, presumably, the pound sterling is called the pound sterling because it also corresponds to a weight, and the shekel is called shekel as a kind of nickname to the idea that it corresponds to this whole weight. Uh, there was nothing admixtured in; it was pure. It was. It was it was pure metal. It didn't have any dross. Okay, that's the Ramban's point. So that's why it's called shekel. It's because of the weight. But why is it called kodesh? Because not because it's going to the Beit HaMikdash per se, but because it's used as a mitzvah object. It's used as a mitzvah object to, whenever the halacha requires money to be paid to the Beit HaMikdash, or for, or for types of, uh, of, uh, of pidyon to redeem to redeem uh, an animal that had been that had been sanctified, and now you want to kind of buy it back, as it were, from Beit Hamikdash or any other purpose. So you use the shekel. That's the currency. That's the legal tender in Beit Hamikdash and in Jewish society around Beit Hamikdash, around the Mishkan. And therefore, since it's used for a mitzvah purpose, this currency. Although you could also take the money and I guess go to the makolet and buy a bag of milk. But the currency itself is holy because of its use for mitzvah purposes. Yes, sir? Um, would, would it have been, so to speak, designated prior to the mitzvah as that which was going to be used for the Mahatib No, no, no. No, no, it seems to me, it seems to me that from the, uh, from the Ramban, it means you had money. You had money in the bank. You had money in your wallet or pocket. And that shekel, the name of the currency is Shekel HaKodesh. It, it, see, it seems that way from the reading of the Ramban, right? That it's called Shekel HaKodesh because it's used for holy purposes, even though presumably it would also be used for non-holy purposes. All, any time the Torah talks about money and monetary payments, Yikra lo hakatuv Shekel HaKodesh. And similarly, this is what I think, says the Ramban. And now, he makes a parenthetical statement, which is actually what I want to speak about this evening, this parenthetical statement. He says, that's why Hebrew is called Lashon HaKodesh, the holy language, the holy tongue. The, 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 the nickname for Ivrit as Lashon HaKodesh appears already, if you have, you have it on, this, on the, the middle of the page two, 
The Mishnah already, in a few places, refers to Ivrit as Lashon HaKodesh. The Mishnah in, in two places in Masechet Sota, Masechet Sota deals with different um, oral declarations that have to be made. Things that, texts that have to be recited, like in the case of the Sota herself, uh, like in the case of of Mikra Bikurim, Chalitza, Brachot and Klalot, Birkat Kohanim, certain, certain rituals that, that require you to recite something. So certain rituals have to be said in Hebrew, in the original, as opposed to other things which can be said in any language that you understand. I mean, you all know the halacha, that prayer, which is probably the most uh, well-known Jewish ritual involving declaration of a, of a text. Prayer can actually be said in any language, although, of course, obviously, it's preferable to pray in Ivrit. But certain things have to be, certain declarations have to be made in Hebrew, but the nickname that the Mishnah gives for Hebrew doesn't say Be'ivrit, it calls it Lashon HaKodesh, the holy tongue. The Ramban says, just like the Shekel is called the Shekel HaKodesh, the adjective Kodesh applies to the Shekel because the Shekel is an instrument for mitzvot. So too, Ivrit, Hebrew, is called Lashon HaKodesh because it is used for mitzvot. Shuhu mipnei divrei Torah v'hanivuot v'chol divrei kedusha kulam belashon ha'hu ne'emru because the prophecies given to the prophets of old, Moshe Rabbeinu, Yirmiyahu, Yishayahu, Yecheskel, etc., etc., were given in Hebrew. The Torah was given in Hebrew. All matters of holiness are given over in that language. And God himself, as it were, also speaks Hebrew. Of course, God doesn't speak any language because speech is a function of of being a physical being. You know, that air passes over my larynx and that's what you're hearing. And my teeth and tongue and gums are forming them into different sounds. God doesn't have teeth, tongue, gums, larynx, air. So metaphorically we speak of, we speak of speech, but God himself speaks Hebrew. Uh, uh, and that's the language with which he communicates to his prophets and even all of us who heard whatever that meant heard the first two Dibrot the first two of the Ten Commandments heard them in Lashon HaKodesh all of God's names the seven holy names of God the names that were forbidden to erase these are Names and his own name is a Hebrew, is a Hebrew name. Uvo vara olamo, and with Hebrew, God created the world. Now this is an idea that exists in in the um, this is an idea that exists in the uh, in the already in Chazal, but it's an idea that the Ramban made famous. The Ramban has a lengthy introduction to has a lengthy introduction to the Torah, to his commentary on the Torah. If you've, never, uh, if you've never read it, it's worth reading. It's worth reading. As a matter of fact, I once tried to convince Rabbi Bravender to take off a number of weeks from the regular parsha year and to teach that. 
I mean, it's something that he's done, he'd done, he used to do in the yeshiva, in the old days, and any serious student of Chumash needs to make it a point to do a very serious study of the Ramban's introduction to his Torah commentary, which is, of course, like everything else in the world, also now available uh, in English, but it's not the same thing, as you'll see after we finish discussing the value of, of Hebrew. Um, so the Ramban, among the ideas, among the Kabbalistic ideas that, uh, that the Ramban discusses there is the notion that the entirety of the Torah from Bereshit Bara Elohim to Le'enei Kol Yisrael is all one of God's names. This is a Kabbalistic notion which I neither have the, the intelligence nor the wherewithal to properly explain. But the idea that the Torah itself constitutes one of God's names is an idea that the Ramban uh, develops along with the idea that the language of the Torah is the language of creation. That the, me- the mechanics of how the world were created, the idea that God spoke, again, every time I make reference to this, add in, you can add into yourselves the as it were. That when God spoke, God speaks and the world comes into being. Vayomer Hashem Yihi Or Vayihi Or He didn't need to take atoms and smash them together to produce something. It was through speech. The Torah describes creation as being through speech, which is an idea that the Kabbalists developed, which is the idea that the Ramban makes great, uh, puts great focus on. The idea that through speech the world is created and that that speech, of course, was in Hebrew. So since Hebrew is used for all of these mitzvot, both the mitzvot that we do, as well as God's own language, and obviously if God is going to use a tool to create the world, like if you imagine God really did fashion the world out of a hammer and a chisel, and we had that hammer and chisel, I mean, don't you think that would be something that we, we wouldn't leave like out in the, in the backyard? Yeah, I, I, in my house, if I'm looking for a screwdriver, it's like it's like a uh, it's like a scavenger hunt, because the last person, often a child, who used it for something, you know, like left it. It's like you, you find it like dug into the into the backyard because he was like digging for earthworms with a screwdriver in the backyard. Do you think if we had, as it were, the hammer and chisel that God actually created the world with? Like you'd find it in, you know, buried in my backyard. No, it would be like in a museum. It would be in the Israel Museum. It would be under a big, fancy white dome. Right? So we have that tool. What is the tool that God used to create the world? The Hebrew language. And therefore, obviously, that's why it's Lashon HaKodesh. And the, the names of the Malachim and the names of all the Holy Ones uh, uh, and the names that he called to the land of Israel... And, and the names of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, the idea that the names of the biblical characters themselves are somehow a reflection on their achievement or their personality. In all those plays on words of the biblical characters, Avraham, Avhamon Goyim, Yaakov, because of the Ekev, because of the heel, Yitzchak, because of the laughter, well, obviously those names are Hebrew names, because the the play on word on their name only works in in Hebrew. These are the kinds of things that you can't capture in translation because you can't capture the double meaning. That's the Ramban's position as to why Hebrew is Lashon HaKodesh. But then 
he quotes the Rambam. In a number of places in the Perush al-Hatorah, the Ramban, Nachmanides, quotes his great predecessor, Maimonides, the Rambam. The Rambam, of course, did not write a Perush al-Hatorah. But he, he did explain very many Torah passages in the More Nevuchim. So the Ramban quotes the Rambam from the More Nevuchim and then disagrees with him in almost every case that he quotes him. And there's a list of all the places where the Ramban quotes the Rambam in the More Nevuchim. And here he quotes the Rambam. I, I cut and pasted for you in English at the bottom the Rambam in the Moran Nevuchim because I'm not going to read and explain every word for reasons that will become apparent because after all this is a this is a family program so we need to keep it we need to keep it modest we need to be firmer than the Rambam don't we? V'harav Amar b'Moran Nevuchim the Rav who's the Rav? It's not Rav Kook, it's not Rav Salvechik, it's the Rambam. The Rav is the Rambam says in the Morn of Uchim, the third volume, chapter 8. Al tachshov shenikra l'shonenu l'shona kodesh l'ga'avatenu o l'ta'utenu. The Rambam says, don't assume that it's called the Holy Tongue because we're so arrogant, we're so proud, or because we've somehow made a mistake in, in calling it thus, Aval hu badin. It's correct. It's justified that it's called Lashon HaKodesh because of the following reason. Kizeh HaLashon Kadosh lo bo shemot There are no what they used to call dirty words. All of the references to intimate body parts and you can read for details if you don't understand my meaning. You can read along in English. All of the words used by the Torah for intimate body parts, for sexual intercourse, for that matter, for human excrement, pardon the expression, are all euphemisms. The Torah has no naughty words. And we all know this, of course. You know, anybody who's been here long enough to have picked up enough modern Hebrew uh, uh, you know that all the choice, all the choice cuss words in in modern Hebrew, well, they're either Aramaic or they're they're Yiddish or they're Russian. You know, like so much, uh, like so much uh, uh, Kuban, Borscht, and 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 uh, and lots of other things that we imported into our culture. We imported all those words into our culture uh, into our culture as well. But Hebrew has no has no has no, what we would call, naughty words, says the Rambam. And whenever the Torah needs to make reference to, to such things, we, you know, which is fascinating, of course, because the Torah does make reference to such things as body parts and sexual acts and, and, and other things, it always uses one or another type of euphemism. A euphemism is a, is a more uh, appropriate word used without having to spell everything out in all the graphic details, but it's a word obviously that can, can, can convey the meaning to the listener, can convey the meaning to the, uh, to the listener. Um, at a certain point in the history of language, as a language evolves, what once was a euphemism becomes a word for the thing itself and then takes on the 
naughty connotation. And then a new euphemism has to be developed. Uh, right? You know, the same thing with lahavdil. Uh, it's not exactly the same, but with words that are politically correct and politically incorrect. Today's politically correct term for, you know, one or another, uh, you know, race or group, you know, in 10 years will become politically incorrect and we'll have a, we'll have a, we'll have a new one. That's why it's sometimes confusing for people to keep up with the, with the scorecard. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm thinking of an, of an older relative who sometimes refers to certain groups by words which are no longer acceptable, you know, and, and he can't say, but that's what they used to, that's what they used to call themselves. Right? Well, <coughs> it doesn't work that way. So that idea is also true here with with uh, with euphemisms. And then the then so then the Rambam gives a number of examples um, of uh, of of these cases. Um, and then in the next paragraph, the Ramban explains why he thinks the Rambam's interpretation is incorrect. Vehine. The final paragraph here in the Rambam. This reason given by the Rambam is, is unnecessary, meaning it's incorrect. No. Hebrew is not holy for some type of external reason. It's not holy because it's got no words for all of those dirty things. It's inherently holy. And the reason that the Rambam gave, to my mind, is, is not true. The Ramban had mentioned this term, Yishgalena. Yishgalena is a term used in Parsha Kitavo. In Parsha Kitavo, in, uh, in, um, in Dvarim Perekafchet, in the Klalot, in the curses that will come onto the people that don't keep the Torah, one of them is the idea that you'll be betrothed to a woman, but before you're able to marry her, someone else will come along and be intimate with her. The term used in the Torah for to be intimate with her is the ktiv is yishgalena, but the kri, you know, sometimes when we lane the Torah you know, in the Chumash, on the margin, it'll tell you how it's pronounced. So sometimes that's there because it's Malayan Chaser. That, you know, there's an extra letter or you, you, it has a long vowel instead of a short vowel. And sometimes the Kriyuchtiv completely changes the word that's read. One word is written, another word is read. One category of Kriyuchtiv is that there are certain words, although they're written in the Torah, they're written in the Chomash, they're written in the, in the Torah scroll right there before you, but you don't read the word as it's printed on the cloth. You read a different word, a euphemism. So instead of reading this term, yish, Yishgalena, we read Yishkavena. Yishkavena, which literally means, you know, to lie with, which is itself a euphemism for sexual intimacy. So the Ramban says, you see, right there, there's proof. The, Ram, the Rambam wanted to interpret the term Yishgalena itself as a euphemism for intimacy. But the Ramban says, no, it can't be. Because if we need a kriyuchtiv to indicate that we don't read that word out loud in the public Torah reading, it means that the word itself, as it's written in the Torah, 
is a word which has some kind of, you know, it's not so proper to read it out prop, uh, as part of the Kriyat Torah. And therefore, the Rambam is wrong. That there are words in the Torah that are not so, uh, you wouldn't want every kindergartner uh, to come home uh, saying them. You know, as your mother used to say, well, wash your mouth out with soap. So you see that the Rambam is, is wrong. And additionally, in Mipnei Ta'amo Shoharav, and if the Rambam were correct, Hayu Korim Lo Lashon Nikiyah, instead of calling it Lashon HaKodesh, the Holy Tongue, Chazal would have nicknamed it the clean tongue, the modest tongue, the modest language, but not the holy language, the sacred language. It, it would have been called Lashonikia Vamruki, and then he gives he gives some other some other examples which are. Hmm? Oh, meaning the Rambam the Rambam's reason. Oh, okay. So then, what according to the Rambam would be the actual reason? You wanted to say that the Rambam's notion of the euphemistic nature of the Torah is the indicator that it's, that's the reason that it's the sacred tongue. Are you saying the Rambam said that? That's what the Rambam says. Yeah, the Rambam disagrees. But maybe the Rambam just was an example of saying that. That's an example of, that's not the reason. So then what is the reason according to the Rambam? Because it's the Torah of Hashem. Well, so then why isn't he saying, so that's what the Rambam says. Ah, so maybe they mean the same thing. So, uh, that actually sounds like a pretty reasonable, such a reasonable solution to the Machlokas that the Ritva himself says something along those lines. And if you look on page two, the Ritva, the Ritva has a slender volume called the Sefer HaZikaron. The Sefer HaZikaron. Um, Actually, Rabbi Bravender quotes it from time to time. It's a book that addresses almost every case. Its, its sole agenda is, it, there's, a, an edition, there's more than one edition of it, I think, uh, but the, the one that I have, the one that I Xeroxed out of, and the one that's uh, readily available, is an edition put out by Masada of Cook um, many years ago. It's, a, it's a, a slim little volume. The Ritva addresses all of these machlokot between the Ramban and the Rambam in the Mornevuchim in the Perush al HaTorah. The dozen or so places that Nachmanides quotes the guide for the perplexed and disagrees with him. And what he tries to do, you know, the Ritva felt very torn. He was from the school of the Ramban, but yet, of course, the Rambam loomed large. And he felt caught between the two. And what he attempts to do is to resolve the machlokas between the Rambam and the Ramban in the Perush al-Haturah. And what he says is something like this. I'll, I'll paraphrase it. Well, first, he, you know, he, quotes, the, he quotes the case. Um, and then... Uh, And then four lines down, next footnote four, the Ritva then takes up his, his resolve and he says, The Amar Amar 
Hamorezal biikar ta'amo. Can't be. Just, I'm sorry, what's your name? Lima. Precisely what you said. Can't be that that's what the Rambam really meant. Or it can't be that's all that the Rambam really meant. Kitala inyan gadovin arabidavar kalkaze. That he that he uh, uh, chose such a, a seemingly, um, I don't want to say flippant, but something so minute, like the absence of, or the presence of, of euphemism in the, in the cases where there's more explicit terms, that's the source of the kedusha of the Hebrew language, the davar gadol, the norah, the Hebrew language, the language with which God creates the world, the reason it's holy is because there's no there's no word for the for the for the private organs. Ladati ki lasod gadol lefidarko shelo natan legaluto. There must be a secret hidden reason that he did not express explicitly. Charadet kol charada ledaktek al kriyat l'shanenu l'shana kodesh. וְחַכְמֵהֶמֶת <laughs> I mean, even in English, the word excrement is, a, of course, a euphemism. Um, uh, and in Hebrew, you have, in the Torah, you have, a, more so in Navi, you have a kriyuchtiv with the word tso'eh, which in modern Hebrew is not such a proper term, but I'll say it here, because after all, it's written there in the Navi. Tso'eh itself is milashon yitzi'ah, that which exits, right? That which exits, which is, after all, the same... I mean, it's a kind of funny topic for a shiur, but... Um, the excrement is from the same, right? To excrete, to 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 leave, right? That which exits uh, the the body, right? So even there, you even there, it's it's in the Torah, it's a euphemism for. But again, it's a perfect example that that term in modern Hebrew becomes something of a the the, the euphemism itself has become something of a of a of an improper a term. It can't be that that's the reason. So what's the reason? So it seems that the way the Ritva, I mean these are my words, not the Ritvas, but I think that I'm, this is what he's trying to say. The Ritva says that what the Ramban really thinks, the Rambam really means, is the following. What is the Rambam's first agenda in the Mor Nebuchim? What's the one theme? I mean, the Mor Nebuchim is a, is a wide-ranging work. But what's the first major topic that the Rambam takes up in the Mor Nebuchim in the Life of the Perplexed? Uh, well, grammar, but not grammar for grammar's sake, but a theory of language, right? A theory of language. And he's principally motivated by the desire to explain what metaphor is. That even though the Torah is full of all types of descriptions of God in a way that God is not, 
principally physical, hands and eyes and ears and fingers. and But that's a metaphor. And the Rambam spends quite a few chapters at the, at the beginning of the Mornivuchim dealing with an explanation of a theory of language. That that's what metaphor is. That the power of the power of the Torah, the power of any written document, is to contain in words abstract ideas. This was a part of the problem, and here I'll try to connect it to the main subject in the parasha. This is part of the problem of Avodah The Rambam himself explains in a fascinating uh, passage at the beginning of Hilchot Avodah Hilchot Avod Kochavim, how could it be? How could it be that those people in the in the time that you get to in the time that you get to Avram Avinu, Adam Arishon certainly believed in God. Noach, you hit the reset button ten generations later. Noach comes out of the Teva. Noach and his children they certainly believe in the one God. How in just a couple short generations do you get to switch to a situation where the entirety of the world has switched over to belief in idolatry? I mean, with very few exceptions. It's not true what we always say that Avram's the first one to discover God, first of all, because there were these characters beforehand in history who had known God, uh, known the truth of God. But even in the generation of, of Adam, of Avraham, of Avraham, it could be that there were other people that believed in monotheism. The innovation of Avram Avinu is not so much that there's only one God, but it's the idea that that God commands us to live and act in a certain commanded way. That's a topic maybe if I should ever come back on Pashat Lech Lecha. There was this interesting article in the New Yorker this week by that uh, journalist uh, uh, Adam Gopnik. You ever read him? You must read the New Yorker, no? Yeah, I would think if anybody does, it would be you. Um, it's, an, uh, it's an article about atheism, and it, it's based around this question of, throughout much of recorded history, in the argument between uh, believers and atheists, the uh, burden of argument was on the shoulders of the atheist. It was a given that we lived in a world of faith. It was a given that we lived in a world with God. And the atheist had to come along and make an argument that the whole wide world was incorrect. And somehow, in the last number of generations, even though the overwhelming majority of people on the planet are still believers in one form or another of, of God, but yet the whole weight of the argument has shifted. Now it's people of faith that have the burden of proof uh, to, 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 make, to make their argument. The, 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 Ramban, the Rambam describes how the mistake came about in the beginning, in the first few halachot in Hilchot Avodah Zarah, Avodah Kochavim that there was a mistake. It was an innocent mistake, maybe. People believed in God. They wanted to serve God. They wanted to worship God. But in order to give them focus, I'm, I'm summarizing, 
they would point to a star or a tree. And they didn't think the star or the tree was God, was even a manifestation of God. But we humans have trouble with the abstract, and we're much better with the concrete. And then one thing led to the next, and you began to believe that the star itself had some powers. It wasn't a god, but it was somehow an emissary of God. It, was, it had powers that were granted to it by God. And then, yeah, one thing leads to the next, until you're worshipping the star or the tree or the rock or the stone or the statue itself. We have a problem with the abstract. That was what goes wrong at Chet HaEgel. That's what goes wrong with the sin of the golden calf. Uh, and however you interpret Aaron Cohen's role in the whole episode, uh, uh, the, the principal uh, mode of interpretation is to say that he was trying to hold them off. He was trying to give them something to hope in. He was trying to, you know, what we in, in modern uh, nationalism talk about, you know, rally around the flag. Why is a flag such a powerful symbol? Well, because you put it up on a stick and whether it's the red, white, and blue, the stars and stripes, or the Union Jack, or the, or the Magen David, it's something to, to give people focus. It's something to give people hope. It's after all what the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah describes was the purpose of Moshe's hands being raised in the battle with Amalek. Or the Nachash HaNachoshet, the, the brazen <coughs> serpent up on the stick. Because it directed people's attention not to his hands, but to, to the heavens, to God. It's also part of the mechanism, part, part of the mechanics of, of how tzitzit are supposed to work. Right? right? Like tying a string around your finger to remember to bring home the bottle of milk on the way home from work. Right? They're, they're, they're a type of mnemonic. But generally speaking, we're very... Um, Icon poor. We don't go in for. I mean, here we are standing in a synagogue, and it's well, it's it's decorated in a way that probably most of the synagogues that we. I mean, some of you must have been here during the on Shabbat, but it's decorated in a way that looks a little different than most of the synagogues we grew up in. Certainly, those of us that grew up in. Uh, that grew up in in uh, that grew up in America, but there's no iconography here. What's the most um, stark Jewish icon? For those that are just listening to the MP3, I just opened up a large uh, volume of the Talmud. Right when uh, when Rabbi Steinzaltz started translating the Gemara into English. Not this version that's being done now with the Korain here in Yerushalayim, but whatever it was, 25 years ago, there was a, an aborted attempt to translate the Steinzaltz Gemara into English in, uh, with Random House in the United States. And it, it only survived a couple volumes, then the operation went bust. But there was a front page review on the New York Times book review written by no less uh, a man of letters than Leon Wieseltier. Uh, you know, it was like, you know, like the dean of, of, uh, of literary critics in the United States. He also happens to be a very Jewishly engaged person and a learned person himself. But he describes that, 
you know, he tries to describe something about what the Talmud is before he goes on to discuss the merits of that particular translation. Says, Judaism is an, is an icon poor religion, which is remarkable that we've had such a good long run of it. Because icons have, have a lot of power in the cultures where they play, where they play a role. And then he develops this idea, you can find it if you Google it, I'm sure you can find it online, this, this essay of his, it's, it's, it's worth reading. Oh my, I'm sorry. Um, uh, he develops this idea that, uh, that this is the icon. The word becomes, the image of the word becomes the icon that sustains and supports and enables us throughout 2,000 years of of Galut, that idea of uh, our home in the text, that's not my phrase, I just borrowed it from someone else, the idea that wherever we were as a people, wherever we were as a people, oh, 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 look what I've just done to our icon, um, wherever we, we were as a people, we had the text that could travel with us, more handy than a temple, more, more portable even than the Mishkan. Were our, was the word, right? was the book, was the language. And the language became our home that we could transport with us. So, what the Ramban is saying, and what the Rambam may also be, may also be saying, if we reinterpret him properly, is that the Hebrew language is holy either because it's this tool that we carry around with us like our talis and tefillin in order to do mitzvot and the principal mitzvah of engagement with the text the principal mitzvah of prayer of Torah study of prophecy of, of and it's that same tool that God lends us from his toolbox with which he created the world or for the Rambam the sod, the secret that the Rambam may have been hinting at in this otherwise um, strange comment of his about the, the, uh, the sanctity of the language is that the language is hiding something. That the language means more than what it says. That metaphor is, is a way to contain ideas, profound ideas. To generate. To, to generate ideas? Yeah, well, maybe yes, maybe no. I'm not, I'm not sure. Let's hold off on that. Um, but uh, but it's, the, it's, the, it's the suitcases, the language is the suitcases with which we carry ideas. Books are just a, a physical manifestation of that. But even, I mean, the whole idea that we had this oral law, which literally was not written down, even though now we have it in its written format, it's the container for who we are as a people. For I think it's mine. I just made it up. <laughs> this is a significant question which returns only in the last hundred years. Uh, completely by coincidence, you know, they had that big, you know, there's that conference every year about, uh, 
about um, you know the the Kenesivrit in Rishon Lezion. It was this week. The idea that we were going to resurrect this language for daily use. You can pass this out. There's not enough copies, but it's not important that everybody have. Um, it is an idea that 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 was, you know, a hundred years ago, a hundred and ten years ago, it was not a given that we'd be able to do it. And the idea that Hebrew, the role that Hebrew was going to play in the modern Jewish world was one about which people really debated. Hillel Halkin, you know, who's today one of the really important, you know, translators of of Hebrew into English, Hebrew literature into English. You know, he wrote that essay uh, last month in the, uh, what's it called, in the Mosaic, you know, that website. You know, they put up these essays about matters of importance to the Jewish people, about the future of diaspora Jewry, at least in the United States. It was a pretty, pretty sorrowful prediction. Uh, the future of the Jewish people is in Israel, he says. But after all, I'm here speaking to the converted. Um, Halkin has a line in an essay called um, the essay itself is called The Translator's Paradox or Confessions of a Translator something like that it was published years ago in commentary and he, it's a kind of guilty confession of somebody who's you know, spent many years translating Hebrew literature into, into English this is when he grew up in the United States in the, in the 40s and for all the generations before, Hebrew was not the first language of any Jew. But it was the second language of every Jew. What? Of every male. It's true that it wasn't true about everyone. There were people about whom it wasn't even the second language. But the point he was making, I think, in a kind of poetic way, was that Hebrew was a living language. This was part of the critique that Bialik had on Ben Yehuda. The idea that Ben Yehuda revived the language is a mistake, because in order to revive something, it has to be dead. And Hebrew was never dead, although maybe it was in the freezer. Maybe it had to be defrosted, if not revived. But Hebrew was always a language of prayer and of study and of the you know of a certain educated class which was almost exclusively male it was a language that people could interact with. and if a Jew from Istanbul and a Jew from Paris uh, uh, were to meet you know on the streets of Rome they would have a common language and it would have been it would have been Ivrit that is no longer the case uh, today in 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 the diaspora. Hebrew is in a much uh, more precarious situation. And even though there's more engagement with Jewish texts, with Hebrew texts, than there ever was before, it's being done through the medium of translation. This letter that we have, that was interestingly only discovered about 20 years ago, it's a letter that Gershom Sholom wrote to Franz Rosenzweig. Uh, Rosenzweig, you know, Rosenzweig died quite young uh, of uh, you know what today is called Lou Gehrig's disease. You know, it's terrible, terrible disease. He wrote his last book 
you know, blinking. His wife would, you know, he would, he would blink once for A and twice for B and three times for C and his wife would take down the dictation and he dictated his, his last book, you know, through, through blinking because he had become paralyzed and lost his speech and etc. to this disease. So as he was dying, you know, his friends made this kind of, um, like a letter book, uh, like a festschrift of some sorts, but it was never published properly. And it was only discovered like in the 80s or something like that. It's a very interesting story, this particular thing. One of the things in this book is this letter that Shalom writes to Rosenzweig in 1926. At this point, Shalom had already come on Aliyah. He was living in Yerushalayim. He would go on to you know, found the academic discipline of the study of, of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism. And it's apparently a continuation of a conversation that they had been engaged in over a number of years when they both lived in Germany. And Shalom has this idea that, uh, that the language is a volcano. The idea that we're going to take Hebrew, we're going to take this, this language. Let's just pick out one or two juicy passages. Um, more sinister than the Arab problem is another threat, a threat which the Zionist enterprise unavoidably has had to face. The actualization of Hebrew. Um, and then towards the bottom of that page, today it seems weird to us and at times we are scared and frightened to hear a religious phrase quite out of place in a totally unrelated context. Fraught with danger is the Hebrew language. It cannot remain and will not remain in its present state. Since our children no longer have any other language, they and they alone will have to pay for this predicament, which none, of, which none other than we have imposed upon them without forethought. And without question, if and when the language turns against its speakers, and this has already occurred, and this, and this has occurred already on bitter and unforgettable occasions when the arrogance of this undertaking has become apparent, will we then have a youth which can exist and survive the revolution of a holy language? And then towards the bottom of the second to last paragraph, uh, God will not remain silent in the language in which he has affirmed our life a thousand times and more. Shalom was not a religious Jew. He was very, very far from being a, a religious Jew, although he, he had some form of belief which he defined in different ways at different points in his life. But he says, what are we trying to do? We're taking a language which was the container, it was the repository of all of those ideas, and we're trying to secularize it for everyday use. You know, so that you can go to the Makolet and you can go to the garage and you can go to... You know, I mean, I don't know how long you've been here, but I've been here, I've been here about 20 years. Some of you have been here much longer. And, you know, we who are all, all of us second... You know, Hebrew is a second language, no matter how proficient our Hebrew may or may not be. And, you know, some of us have been here probably 20, 30 years and our Hebrew may not still be proficient. That's a problem. Uh, a, a few... A few months ago, I had to go into a hardware store. You know, I know that there are places to go into the, into the mechanics or to go into the hardware store. Those are t- I don't even attempt to speak Hebrew because I don't know what these things are called in English. Right? I don't know what's going on. I'm a complete amharitz when it comes to what goes on under the hood of my car. I go into the hardware store and I'm trying to explain to the guy, you know, like in English, I would have said, I need one of those, you know, thingamabob, doohickey things, you know, that goes here and you turn it and it's, he says to me, How many years are you, are you in Israel? So I said, almost 20. He says, 
20 שנה בארץ ואתה לא יודע שזה הצ'ופצ'יק? Don't you know this is the chupchik as Hebrew for thingamabob, right? In other words, the point is that there's certain, you know, everybody's at a loss. Because it's a language that, to a certain degree, in the past four or five generations, we've been making up as we go along, right? You can look from the Torah to the Mishnah to Chazal to the Rishonim, and they didn't have a word for, for that thingamabob that I needed in the, in the hardware store. So we've needed to make it, we've needed to make it up. Shalom says... Can you imagine we're going to take this language which was used for nivuah and kedushah and for mystically creating the world and we're going to use it to go into the hardware store and not think that there isn't going to be a messianic thorn left in it that's going to come back to bite us? By using this tool, the tools we use are not value neutral. Hebrew is a tool is a container that contains, you can imagine you're emptying it of the meaning. You see all those books on those shelves? But there'll always be that residue of the holiness that was contained in that box. And it will always come back to get us. It will lead to fanaticism. Years later, he was still quite young when he, when he wrote this. Years later, he, he uh, moderated his view. But his view here was the exact opposite of Bialik's view. Bialik had the idea that you could empty out the, 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 the container and reprogram it with reprogram it with secular meaning. He has a line in an essay. You, you don't have it in front of you. He has an essay called the Sheilat Tarbut Tarbut Ha'ivrit. And Bialik says that when he, you know, look, this is part of their achievement. Uh, I, I mean, some of you know, some of you have been there, you know, that I, I give these lectures at the Agnon house. So on Sunday night, I, I gave this talk there about Agnon and about, uh, it was a series about Agnon and the influence of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov on Agnon. But I concluded by saying something along the lines of part of the achievement of, of, of what Agnon did was that he was inventing a language as it was flowing out of his pen. Unlike many other authors that become the high watermark of the language in which they're, in which they're writing, Agnon was, it was you know, like hitting a moving target. They were, they were developing the language as they were trying to simultaneously create in it. And that's really the achievement. So Bialik says, "Ani bocher b'kavana b'terminim yishenim b'terminology." He says, "I always prefer." And this was part of the machlokas. You know, it, it would come time to invent a word. So, airplane. What's the Hebrew word for an airplane? What? Matos. It was so. My mother-in-law, my mother-in-law, who, who's you know of a certain generation. Uh, you know, so she, now it's better, she's been here long enough, but they used to come, my, my in-laws used to come, and you know, my, my father-in-law, you know, who was a graduate of the Yeshiva Flatbush, you know, he knew how to speak Hebrew, he would say, Bati Meha Aviron, right? But you know, and the grandchildren would look at him like, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> right? But that, that's an example, that was a machlokus between Bialik and Ben Yehuda. Airplane. So there's no Hebrew word for airplane. So you have to invent one. Bialik said matos, 
Ben Yehuda said Aviron. So sometimes one one and sometimes the other one. How are these decisions made? Which one wins? Well, the academy does Paskin Shilas, but, but people vote with their feet or with their tongues. Right? But one word becomes more popular. And at a certain point, Aviron was the, was the, was the figure. And, and there's a reason that, that each of them favored the word that they did. We didn't have time for that now. But there was a reason and there was an ideology behind why they each favored that word. So Bialik says, I always try to find an old word and, you know, kind of connect it to what, to what the new term needs to be. Um, I want to redeem all of that old vocabulary. I want to redeem all the, 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 the words from their, from the context in the Tanakh, in the Chumash, in the Tanakh, in Chazal, for their new modern uh, usage. Haklali secularizatia shel hamunachim haele. To secularize those old holy terms for new everyday use. Chalul im letargemet hamunach secularizatia. Bumuvan chol. To make something chulin. Right? I mean, he uses this this English or this Latin term, secularizatia, to secularize, says, b'muvan shel chol. And then he quotes the pasuk, you have it on the back of the back sheet, niya isha shenata kerem velo chilalo, yelech v'yashov leveto. When the Torah is describing the people that should be exempt from, from army service, also a very practical uh, contemporary term, contemporary concept. Who should be exempt from from uh, from army service? One of the people in the category: a, a newlywed, somebody who just built a home, and somebody who planted a vineyard, but yet did not have time. Lechalalo. What does it mean? Lechalalo. What's lechalalo? In what way is it profane? No, in other words, the first three years, it's, it's Kodesh. It's holy because of the dinim of, like with a tree, like Orla. Right? And then the fourth year is, is, is Revai. Right? And then it goes out into Chulin. Chulin meaning common use, everyday use. Something which has a vacuum of... It's not... It's not a pejorative term. Kodesh and Chol. Chol is not negative because it's not Kodesh. Chol means every day. Right? Secular, that's what secular means. Secular doesn't mean anti-holy. doesn't mean profane. Profane is the, is the incorrect term. Incorrect translation of, of sacred and profane. Kodesh and Chol. Not sacred and profane. Right? But it means... Un, not, not unholy, but not holy. So, Bihalik makes this pun that he's trying to lichalel, to secularize the, the, the Hebrew language for everyday use. And, 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 uh, and Shalom disagrees. Shalom says, you can't do it. It's always going to come back to bite you. I know that we're a moment over, but let me just conclude with one last thought. 
sensitive as I am to the fact that I've just given this shiur in English in Yerushalayim you know you can imagine someone spinning in their grave over the idea that we would be doing such a thing there's a, a researcher there's a book that came out last year the year before called Through the Language Glass how the language I think the subtitle it's written by a fellow named Guy Deutscher who of course is an Israeli who's spent his whole academic career in England I think at Oxford. Um, and the book is called Through the Language Glass, How the Language You Speak Affects How You Interpret the World. I think that's the subtitle, but the title is definitely Through the Language Glass. And he makes mention of research that was done by someone else from Stanford uh, named Boroditsky. Leora Boroditsky is her name. And they did this interesting research, social science research, where they went... And they, you know, all, English happens to be, this happens not to be the case with English, but all the European languages, as well as Hebrew, which have genders, masculine and feminine nouns. They went, and, you know, it's usually completely random, like why one, why one noun should be masculine or feminine. And often, in even closely related languages, they flip. So they went to a, a, a group of, uh, of German speakers. They went to a group of German speakers, and they did like free association. They showed them a word and asked them to give as many adjectives as, as they could to describe that noun. So to the Germans, they showed a bridge. A gesher. In German, a bridge is feminine. Uh, de Brücke. And the top six adjectives that were used were fragile, elegant, beautiful, peaceful, slender, pretty. And then they went to a group of Spanish speakers. Showed the same picture of the bridge. But in Spanish, bridge is masculine. El puente. And the adjectives that they got for the masculine bridge were strong, dangerous, long, sturdy, big, towering. And then they chose a counterexample, a word which was masculine in German and feminine in Spanish. Key. Mafteach. The Germans, der Schlüssel, say about the masculine key, hard, heavy, jagged, metal, serrated, useful and the Spaniards say about the feminine la clave golden intricate little lovely shiny tiny they're looking at the same picture and they bring this as proof it's not an MRI they bring it as a kind of social science evidence and there were other there were many 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 other examples in the in the in experiment the language we speak is not a neutral, value-free, emptied container. It shapes the way we interpret the world. So we who are committed to the study of Jewish texts, we who are committed to the Hebrew language, even though we don't live in it as native speakers, so you have to think about how that's meant to shape us.
And whether you think like the Ramban, or you think like the Rambam, or you think like the Ritva that thought that more or less they were saying something along the same lines, Hebrew is a language of sanctity. It's a language of holiness. And if we think in Hebrew, if we read in Hebrew, if we speak in Hebrew, if we learn and we pray in Hebrew, so it's meant to have an impact on how we look out and think and interpret the world. And that may be what both the Ramban and the Rambam were getting at. And in that way it's holy because it's meant to be a tool to help us live our life in holiness. Either like the Ramban because it's a mitzvah tool like our lulav, like our sukkah or like the Rambam because it's a kind of metaphorical way of organizing our mind about God and the world. And that's why it's holy. So, despite the fact that we've been doing all this in English, it behooves us to think a little bit be'ivrit. Shabbat Shalom.